We'll go ahead and turn, as the big screen says, to the book of Hebrews. We are looking at the book of Hebrews and going through it chapter by chapter. Wonderful study as we go through it. Last week we were studying the uh, Hebrews chapter 7. As I look over and just kind of quickly uh, review chapter 7, we see that we were studying who Melchizedek is. He's only mentioned two times in the Scriptures. Mentioned in Genesis 14 and again in Psalm 110. And he's only mentioned twice in all of the Old Testament. Yet here in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews writes an entire chapter about him. And what was so important about this character, he was extremely important but he wasn't, it wasn't really taught well. He wasn't, it wasn't carried on as some of the other famous type stories. And even our Sunday school literature today, we don't hear much about him. You know, we hear about, about uh, Abraham. We hear about Joseph. We hear about Daniel and the lion's den. We hear about Noah. But how many times have you heard or been in Sunday school or seen any literature on Melchizedek? But actually, he's an extremely important character here. So uh, the Hebrews chapter 7, we looked at his significance, how important he was, so important that his name means king. His name literally means king of righteousness. The land that he is king of is the is the land of peace. He is the king of Salem. He meets Abraham, who is the patriarch of the entire Israel nation. And within Abraham is represented all those that are to come, including his great grandson, Levi, from which all the priests eventually come, the Levitical priests, because they come from Levi, Levi Levitical. So God ordains a Levitical priesthood, but here we have a person who is priest and who is king, who is king of righteousness. His land is the king of, of the land of peace, and he meets Abraham after Abraham has been doing war, and Abraham brings back all the spoils. And there, Abraham gives this priest, this king, 10% of everything he has. So this whole chapter is laying out the fact that Christ is a priest. But the author of Hebrews here is writing to Hebrews, and this would blow their mind because Christ was not from the line of Levi. He was not a Levitical priest. Whose line was he from? Do we remember? And is Judah, right? He's the, from the line of Judah. That's who the king would come from. And that was prophesied way back in Genesis as well, that the Messiah, the ultimate king, would come from this line. But now he's presenting him as priest, and often he does so in the book of Hebrews. But now where, where and how can he be priest? And he says his priestly order is not Levitical, but is from Melchizedek, who God simply ordained as a priest. And we looked at Psalm 110, where it also states that you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So God announces Christ at this Messiah that is to come as the eternal, the forever priest. There will be no more need for earthly priest after he comes because he is the forever priest. So the, the chapter is laid out that he is the superior priest. Why was this so important to them? Because these sacrifices were still going on. There were still earthly priests who were still going through the motions. The temple was there, but the temple was empty. They were continued to do all of this work, even though Christ had already died. He had already presented himself as the ultimate sacrifice. Christ had already went entered into the heavens, not just the holy place on earth that was a representative of the holiness of God, 
But Jesus had already transcended all of that into heaven, presented the sacrifice, and it was done. The system was fulfilled. But yet on earth, they would not accept it. They kept on doing it. In fact, who ends up murdering Christ? Who ends up murdering the supreme high priest is the earthly high priest, right? Because it was a system that they liked. They enjoyed the power, the prestige, the authority they had. and They would not let it go. So the Hebrews that he's writing to, they can still see this system in place. And many of the people they know are still going to the temple and their priests are presenting sacrifices. And does it work? Is it effective at all? No. The author is saying that is useless. It is done. It is completed. The ultimate high priest has come who has presented the ultimate sacrifice and it is Jesus. Look at 727 with me. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. This is what Jesus has done for us. So we have him who is man, who is God, who lives a perfect sinless life, who offers himself as the sacrifice and he brings himself acting as the high priest to God the Father and that takes care of our sin. That atones for our sin. We don't have to rely on a priest to do this daily as they were doing at that time as the temple was still in operation, but it is done. It is complete. All of our sins, past, present, and future are paid for. All those who believe in Christ as their Savior, this process is done. All right, so let's move on into Hebrews chapter, I believe we're on chapter 8 tonight. And we're going to look at uh, Hebrews chapter 8 and read with me. Let's look at uh, let's look at chapter 8 verse 1 and let's just read through I believe it's through verse 7. Then we'll recap on this. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1. I'll begin. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy Places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts, uh, gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, He was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. We'll pause right there. Let's dig back into this. Let's look back into this, reflect on it, and then we'll go into the new covenant that is about to be announced here that he is going to proclaim to the Jews. So if we look back at verse 1 and 2, another point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He was. He is just giving... In chapter 7, the compelling argument that we have the greater high priest who is now the superior priest. There is no longer any need to go to these earthly priests. 
We really do have him is his point. This is the highest high priest there could be. This is the one that was prophesied. This is the one who is the anointed Messiah, the Christ, the one sent from God. He and he alone is now our representative. We have him. So this is a big deal. If we look back on this, we remember the high priest and what they would do that the high priest represents the people. He goes into the Holy of Holies once a year. And even through all we've looked at this in our discipleship time, he would have to go through painstaking uh, ceremonial cleansing for himself and sacrifice for his own sin, sacrifice for the people's sin, bring the blood, bring incense behind the Holy of Holy uh, curtain that was dividing them, step into where the Ark of the Covenant was. God should kind of glory on top. He would cast the blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant and the whole time with incense in between him and the presence of God because he could not cleanse himself fully. He could not be in the full presence of God. But this high priest represented the nation of Israel. So the whole point in chapter 7 and going into verse 8, chapter 8 here as well, is that we have the ultimate high priest who is sinless, who he and he alone could go boldly into the Holy of Holies, the full presence of God, because there is no sin. He has no need in putting incense between him and God because he is God. He is absolutely sinless. And just as the high priest had the names of the tribes of Israel attached to him as he went in there because he represented the people, he represents us. So this is our high priest that we have now who is before God, who has made the ultimate sacrifice. Our sins are forgiven. We can rest. They have been atoned for. So this is the point of chapter 7 and on into verse 8 here is that we do have this high priest. This is the highest high priest there ever could be. He is our priest forever, eternally. This is Jesus. So the point is to take joy. This one that I've been describing, the author is basically saying here, was chosen by God. He is God. He is sinless. He is also man. He is eternal. That he is the priest in the order of Melchizedek that serves in the real holy of holies, not the earthly one that was man-made and is in the direct presence of God the Father. So the point in all this is take joy. Rest in this. This should be the anchor for your soul as we looked back a couple of Sundays ago that our high priest is there. He is representing us. And one day we will go boldly into the presence of God because of what our high priest has done. Verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer earthly high priests, the ones from Levi, the Levitical priests, had to daily make sacrifices for people. As people would sin, they would have to make sacrifices. They would also have to, to make sacrifices for their own sin. And this is perpetual. It was constant. It had to always continue. The day of atonement was that, that, that day once a year where the high priest would represent all the sins of Israel and he would go into the Holy of Holies. But it was yearly. It was annual. Many of these sins had to be atoned for on a daily basis. So verse 3 says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So they had to do this continuously. They had, this was their job. There was sin. Sin deserves payment. And they would do their very best to make a blood a payment. The most serious thing that we have on earth is a sacrifice of blood 
to God to show the seriousness of sin and that show that show that sin equals death. So this was continually being done. But what is the something that our high priest offers there at the end of verse three? It is none other than himself. Uh, what they brought to the temple, the high priest, uh, the, the, the people who had sinned would bring their animals to the priest. They would be inspected to make sure it was blemishless, to make sure it was, there was nothing done uh, to the animal that was wrong, no scars, no scratches. It had to be the elite. It had to be the perfect in the herd, out of the flock. It had to be the very best they could offer to God. And we see this also with, with the ultimate sacrifice here. If you turn maybe one page, Hebrews 9, verse 14 says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The author of Hebrews draws heavily from the Old Testament. Here we see him use this without blemish term that was used directly. That is pulled directly from the Passover lamb that they were required to, to take into their home, to analyze, to make sure nothing was done wrong to it. No scratches, blemishless, absolutely perfect. And so the ultimate sacrifice that, that Jesus presents is himself. He is absolutely without blemish. There is no sin, no spot of it within him. He is the perfect sacrifice. Uh, similar scripture, if you're taking notes tonight, First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So this something that this ultimate high priest brings that God has appointed is not the blood of the, uh, a lamb, but is the blood of the lamb. As John the Baptist introduced Jesus, remember as he was coming down uh, to be baptized, John says, behold, the lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world. So this is the lamb that is provided by God. How else can a person get to heaven? If you reject the lamb, if you reject the sacrifice that God is giving to us for the forgiveness of our sins, this is the sacrifice sent from the God that we have offended. So he's sent the sacrifice. Jesus Christ presents the sacrifice, which is himself for the atonement of our sins. That's why so many people say, oh, Christians are so narrow minded. They think that they're the only ones getting to heaven. Well, it's not just that we think we're the only ones getting to heaven. It's that God thinks we're the only ones getting to heaven. This is the system that God has put in place. So we have sinned. Every person on earth, God has sent the sacrifice for our sin. If we reject that sacrifice, then we reject God. We reject his method for our salvation. But this is the good news that we should rejoice in this good news, that this is our salvation. This one who is Jesus Christ. So let's move on to verse four. Uh, now, if we were on earth, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. 
Now, this is, again, very interesting. And you guys have been with me uh, for quite some time, and you know that we've looked at these type things before. But just a few weeks ago, we looked at typology. And what is a typology as far as the Bible is concerned? And we looked at Old Testament examples of this. One of them we just covered there is, is in chapter 7, Melchizedek, that he is a type. He is a shadow of the coming Messiah. He is not the Messiah. The, the Messiah is the real one. He is, the, he is real. But the shadow that he cast is way back here, Melchizedek. And he points to this coming Messiah that is the, the king of righteousness. He is the king of the land of peace. He is the one who, who blesses. He is the one who is anointed by God. And even Melchizedek brings to Abraham two things. Remember what those were? We looked at them last week. Uh, the wine and the bread. And what does Christ do uh, to with his disciples on the day he inaugurates? We'll look at this, the, the covenant. He brings the, the wine. He brings the bread. And that's why we take the Lord's Supper. But we see all these similarities, right? So, so Melchizedek, everything that he is doing that is described is pointing to the Messiah, okay? But also the whole system that God puts into place with the priesthood that the entire tabernacle system that is prescribed to Moses and the Israelites to build is a copy, a shadow, a type of the ultimate real one. So how does Moses come up with the architectural designs and, and who comes up with this Ark of the Covenant and the curtain and the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place and the sacrificial system and the seclusion of everyone else except the Levitical priesthood and the one high priest that would go in? Does Moses just sit down and write all this out one day and think, I think it should go down kind of like this? Absolutely not. It actually comes from God. And we see here in these passages we just read that it is a copy is a shadow of heavenly things. And for Moses, verse 5, was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. I have a few passages here. I'm just going to read for time's sake. But again, if you're making notes, feel free to jot this down. Exodus 25, verse 40. Uh, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain that was given God speaking to Moses, letting uh, Moses reminding Moses that this is not up to him to create his own system, but that God has revealed this whole system, this whole structure to him to be done exactly as God has prescribed. Why was it so important for Moses to make sure that everything he built and the whole sacrificial system was as God has, had prescribed? Because it was to be a shadow of everything that the Messiah was going to do. And the Messiah was going to complete this whole process. And this whole process was to point to him. So it had to be done correctly. Um, uh, Acts 7 uh, verse 44 says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. So God gives Moses... Uh, a, a glimpse of what heaven is like and 